Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Lorenzo Saletti. Uh, Dr. Saletti comes to us as one of the co-founders and director of technology development at Neograph Technologies. Dr. Saletti, thank you for coming and joining us on Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you very much, John, to inviting me, and I feel very honored to have this possibility, and I'm very thankful, certainly. So your company, Neograft, is pursuing the development and clinical implementation of a new vascular technology. Perhaps the place to begin is to give us an introduction to this technology and how you envision it will be used to help cardiovascular patients. Absolutely. Our technology is quite simple and address a very large clinical need and a very large market. We develop a coating or a structural support for vein grafts. And vein grafts are normally used for both coronary or peripheral application. And in particular, we have decided as a strategic decision to focus on the coronary market. So processing or technology applied to vein graft for coronary artery bypass application. So what we do is we deposit via an electrospinning process a polymer on the outer surface of a vein graft. And this allowed veins to have an external support, if you wish, a girdle, that provide uh, them with this mechanical reinforcement. So these allowed to accomplish three major objectives. The first one is that allowed the vessel wall to perceive less uh, stress. So it's, it's maybe I should make the premise that when the vein is subjected to arterial condition, it switched dramatically is a more dynamic environment. And in other words, the vein is normally under pressure that are called venous pressure, included between 0 and 10 millimeters of mercury, and they get projected in a heartbeat whenever the flow is reestablished to much higher pressure between arterial pressure or between you know, 70 and 150, maybe higher for hypertensive patient. Therefore, the vein, when implanted as an arterial bypass, see an environment that is completely new, completely non-physiologic for its buildup, and therefore respond to that. The response of the vein is to alleviate that increased stress by building up more building blocks, so increasing the thickness of the wall, and this allows to reduce the stress. However, this mechanism is overcompensated, resulting in a phenomenon called intimal proplasia and then developing into arteriosclerosis, which is one of the, actually, the most important and relevant cause of failure for vein graft. That's why we want to provide that external reinforcement that allows the vein to see less stress once put in arterial condition. Thank you for the introduction. Let me step back just a moment. As I understand the standard of care for coronary artery bypass, Typically, the saffronous veins are harvested from the leg of the patient and used as the grafts for the coronary artery bypass. Am I correct? Absolutely correct. And actually, now the newest trend, let's say the gold standard, is to harvest that saffronous vein from the patient leg via endoscopic procedure. It's called also endovein harvest, which has dramatically reduced the comorbidity associated to the opening of an additional surgical site in the leg. So as you've pointed out, the vein that's harvested from the leg sees, relatively speaking, a a low blood pressure. And when it's used as a bypass graft, 
it sees a much higher pressure regime. Is that correct? Oh, it's very correct. And actually, that pressure, which is two order of magnitude uh, higher in the arterial, so 100 versus, let's say, 0 to 10, it's also is reflected into a higher, much higher level of uh, tension in the wall. And it has been calculated that the increase in tension in the wall of the vein when it's switched from venous to arterial condition is about 50 to 100 fold increase, which gives a, an idea of how dramatic is the environment and the increase in mechanical demand in an arterial condition. So now that this vein that's now functionally serving as an artery sees this higher pressure regime, what happens? Well, all these conditions cause uh, several failure modality for the vein. The increase in in pressure is not the only one. Uh, We have mentioned that, and that is the one that in particular we are addressing. It seems to have the most relevant role. Another aspect is the vein is also functioning, venous system is functioning in a continuous flow mode with very low shear stresses or flow rates. Uh, switch the vein into an arterial condition, now you also have a completely different flow regimen. In other words, the vein has a very high flow, and now this flow is pulsatile. So also in terms of cell signaling, that it's a completely different signal, not only in terms of quantity, but also in terms of quality. So the result of this uh, higher pressure regime causes various uh, failures in the graphs. It reduces the length at which this graft is effective. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very correct. And there's an extensive body of literature that shows that the vein wall, which is made of cell, of course, the vein has three layers like an artery, intimal, medial, and adventitial layer. But in particular, the cells that belongs to the medial layer, which is the one that provide the most of the structural consistency of a vein, which are smooth muscle cells, foresee this increased level of tension, and that caused them to migrate toward intimal location and to proliferate and to synthesize a quantity of extracellular matrix that contributes to the thickening of the wall, which is commonly observed in any vein implanted in arterial condition, and it's called intimal hyperplasia. But that thickening goes mostly inward, therefore limiting the area available for the blood flow to pass through. That is a positive feedback because the more the area get reduced, the luminal area of the blood vessel get reduced by this increase in wall thickness, the more the flow will give signals to the cells that perceive the flow, which are endothelial cells. And these signals are all compatible with, okay, let's increase again the amount of cell proliferation and therefore it accelerates the process of intimal hyperplasia development. And intimal hyperplasia is commonly recognized precursors of atherosclerosis. So the substrate for atherosclerosis and plaque formation is intimal hyperplastic tissue. So Dr. Saletti, as I understand the approach that you and your your colleagues are pursuing, it is that if you give the grafted vein some temporary support, that the vein can more appropriately adapt to this higher pressure regime and not develop these complications you've just described to us. Is that correct? Yeah, very correct. And actually, when we decide and start to develop a strategic plan on how to bring this technology to the market, we also been deciding on following several approaches. One of these, you mentioned a gradual exposure to arterial condition, implying that the polymer would be biodegradable. And that is certainly our main area of uh, focus in this time. But we do not exclude that as a first 
first product, we might also pursue a non-degradable approach in which the cell would be constantly and permanently supported externally. But it's also true that the most important approach that we are pursuing that can be either a class of product that we will develop, most likely one of several products that we will develop, is actually relying on the fact that if the cell belonging to the wall of the vein will be subjected to progressively increasing level of stress, then the cell will have the chance to adapt more correctly and avoiding that overcompensation that caused the graft failure. So that is our most important hypothesis. So Dr. Saletti, as I understand what you just shared with us, you have two strategies. One is to provide a girdle, as you used the term earlier, to provide permanent support to the vein graft. And the second approach is to use a biodegradable girdle or polyurethane wrap so that you, over a period of time, get to the point where the vein is not supported by some exterior construct, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the biodegradable approach is ideal for a number of reasons. First and foremost, having a material that then completely disappears or get metabolized by the human body, it's ideal because a permanent material is always prone to infection, inflammation, even calcification whenever using the vascular realm. The biodegradable approach is the most ideal for these reasons. And also, the biodegradable approach would allow the vein to gradually adapt to this arterial condition because along with the degradation of the external support would go the increase or the gradual increase in uh, stress that the wall would see. However, we are also working with a non-degradable approach, and the reason for that is mainly market-driven and regulatory-driven. It is very likely that we'll bring a technology on the market in a non-biodegradable fashion initially and propose a second line of product that would be biodegradable. Very interesting. I thought it might be worth just reviewing for our listening audience some of the statistics. As I understand it, there's, what, on the order of 800 cardiac bypass procedures a year? 800,000? Well, yeah, the market is really impressive. In in America, we have about 250,000 patients undergoing coronary artery bypass. But consider that each patient receiving average 2 to 3, so 2.5 day in grafts, and therefore that number brings that 800,000 just in America, in the U.S., venous arterial vein graft implanted, which it's the market we're looking at. That number become uh, larger than 2 million graft implanted worldwide yearly. So the market is, is extremely large. And also the cardiac market is the one that has the most flexible. It's, it's quite an expensive one. It has the most flexible also reimbursement code. So there's a lot of flexibility there to new technology that would increase the outcome in terms of patient life expectancy and quality of life for a small increase in cost. Because the increase in quality of life is also translated directly in a strong decrease in healthcare costs. So our rationale is we would add an initial cost to the surgery to then be able to save a significant amount of money in post care for the patient. If I recall reading on the order of 27% of these graphs fail within the first year? Yes, absolutely. And actually, the first year represents the most critical period after a bypass. And about 24 to 27% fails within the first year, and about 40 to 45% then fail in the following four years. So there's almost a plateau in which that first year is really the most critical. That's why also the concept of a temporary support 
that might be in terms of time of the order of months to year might really help us climbing and skipping that initial failure rate, which is very high. And that slope of the curve is very high in the first year. So I think it's important for our listeners to realize that this is an emerging technology that still has to go through the FDA approval process. What's the expectation from a time perspective in terms of where this might be clinically available? Well, we had the luck. Uh, I haven't provided before a background uh, on this technology, but uh, probably this is a good part to do so. So this technology started in early 2000 from an idea of Dr. David Vorp, who was the first to propose that a gradual exposure to arterial condition might facilitate the process of arterialization, if you wish. And that combined with early studies of Dr. William Wagner in about 2003-2004, William Wagner is one of the pioneers of biomaterial science and also the use of electrospinning for soft tissue applications. So these two approaches put together, putting together A and B, gave rise to this technology that was initially tested in 2004. And then the, the bulk of the work to validate this technology was performed by Mohammed Al-Kurdi and by his PhD work through really the year from 2005 to 2000, really like demonstrated also through preclinical study in a large animal model, such as the porcine one, that the technology was working. So from 2009, we have incorporated and of course embraced completely different approach, uh, which is the classic difference between the academia and the company. And of course, this technology has the potential to be a transformative technology. It's, uh, it's actually unheard yet of a processing for tissue that would occur in the OR. So in other words, in our current conceptualization, the surgeon would harvest the vein from the patient, would insert this vein into a cartridge that is a disposable and insert it into a device, push a button, and would, in, in a matter of minutes, we are targeting five minutes, would be able to pull out the vein that is completely coded outside. And so this idea of modifying the tissue in the OR, in an OR setup, it is really, if you wish, futuristic, and that is also very exciting. So if that would really work out, and that's what we're working hard for, has really the potential of uh, introducing a completely different approach uh, occurring in the OR. So back to my question, is this several years before this could be available for patients? Well, yeah, I apologize. I haven't answered before, but upon incorporation, we have embarked a very experienced management team, and that consists of our CEO, which has more than 30 years of experience at cardiovascular market space. He was senior executive. His name is David Wagner in Boston Scientific, and he has been a CEO of many companies also. He has been an investor. So he really brought in an amount of experience that was extremely instrumental to define where we are now. And to answer your question about a regulatory process, a regulatory process for a technology like this is quite long in the U.S. We are, however, targeting our strategy include performing studies abroad, in countries where the regulatory system is non-developed in the same way, which for many aspects can be a positive thing, and then to bring those results back to the U.S. and use them for our main application regulatory process here in America. So this technology will likely be a PMA, which is a pre-market approval pathway, which usually takes a minimum, I believe, of three and a half years but more realistically in the order of five years. But I think the strength of our strategy is that 
we want to initiate studies and also a market abroad. So starting from, say, less developed country, going to the European Union and then moving all these results, possibly also having a revenue while we are applying for the PMA application in the U.S. But it's also possible that we're still exploring that possibility of proposing a 510K application that has a shorter regulatory pathway. So this has been very interesting and uh, an interesting story of uh, moving technology from an academic research laboratory to commercial practice and implementation. So we look forward to uh, continuing to see how your product, AngioShield, uh, matures and uh, succeeds in its both technological development as well as clinical evaluation. Perhaps just briefly, you could tell us a little bit about the status of Neograph, which is the company that uh, you and your colleagues have formed to uh, bring this to fruition. As I understand, the company's been in, in existence now for a period of less than a year. Is that correct? It's correct. Neograph was incorporated at the beginning of March 2009. It has received a seed funding uh, shortly after, after an initial option agreement was secured with the university for the technology. I recall that patent application was filed here at Pitt and was invented here at Pitt. I'm the co-inventor in that technology as well. And so from May 1st, it started the process of hiring. So let's say the company has been active since May 1st, 2009. And to date, we have already met two of our main milestones, which include the development of a prototype and the initiation of uh, preclinical studies in a large animal model, which detail a little bit, describe a little bit the pace that we are moving. Uh, We are moving quite fast, and that is also allowed by this vision of a company structure given by our CEO And in this case, meaning a structure that we are a very lean structure, uh, about five people full-time, but we have a constellation of and a network of consultants, each of the critically strategic, critical strategic areas, uh, including intellectual property, regulatory, biomaterial science, uh, medical, etc. And and that allows us to reduce the cost and move forward quite expeditely. So I hope to keep maintaining this pace in the future until we will be on the market. Very good. So, Dr. Saletti, thank you for uh, joining us today and uh, sharing the uh, technology and the process to bring this to clinical use. I'd remind our listeners, if you want to find more information about Neograph Technologies, they have a website at www.myneograft.com, myneograft.com. And as we conclude this podcast, I remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of future podcasts and topics. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors these podcasts. And we look forward to joining you again in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you. Thank you.